Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. All right, welcome. Uh, we are living through we're living through a time that will be taught in history classes for a very, very long time as one of the worst and most uncertain periods in American history. And you can make the argument we've been living through that period for the past four years. But certainly over the last eight days, we, we've stumbled onto some unprecedented uh, and previously unexplored ground, ground to be avoided. So that's what we'll talk about today. Uh, we're going to start with Philip Bump, correspondent for The Washington Post, based in New York. He's been with us before. Carlos Lozada, uh, one of his colleagues at The Washington Post, uh, is a Pulitzer Prize winner who, he didn't read every Trump book, because no one can do that, but he read about 150 of them, and he has an amazing new book out about that. Uh, much of what we're going through right now was quite predictable from the very beginning. I think you probably know that anyway. And then Jeannie Suk Gerson is a contributing writer to The New Yorker, professor at Harvard Law School. She'll be our final guest here today. But uh, Philip Bump, welcome back to our show. Thank you very much. I'm going to ask you a question uh, that maybe is an unfair burden to put on you, but it was asked of me last night. And so and I was asked by my former wife on the phone, who I'm very close with, she said, you know, basically she said, is this going to be okay? Uh, is it uh, going to be the case that ultimately that there will be a seating of the appropriate electors, uh, that they will cast their electoral votes appropriately, and that Joe Biden will be sworn in in January? And I said, yes, I just said too many people with too much at risk in terms just reputationally and, and maybe even existentially would have to jump on too many live grenades uh, for for this to go otherwise. It would just take too much of a kind of tilting of the game board so that all the pieces left where they should be and slid down to the other end. But did I give the right answer? Uh, that's my inappropriate question for you. <laughs> um yeah, I, I would say that yes, with about 14 asterisks, you gave the right answer. The, the asterisks are, among the asterisks, I should say, are the following. The first is that reliance upon existing structures and norms and understandings, particularly among Republican leaders, was not successful in preventing Donald Trump from becoming the Republican Party nominee in 2015. 2016, and then the president, right? Uh, you know, not necessarily that it should have been, but it certainly was the case the Republican establishment thought that it had a way to contain Trump, which ended up not working. Uh, now, of course, that same sense, well, yeah, we'll let him sort of mess around with this for a while, and then, you know, reality will we'll, we'll bring him to heel. Uh, obviously, now it's a lot more complicated, particularly as he gins up this, you know, think of it as sort of a flywheel of nonsense uh, that he's got spinning on Fox News and in the conservative media and broadly among his supporters who believe his allegations, his totally unfounded allegations about rampant fraud and how Joe Biden is illegitimate. There's a poll I wrote about this morning from YouGov and The Economist. Eighty six percent of Trump voters actually think that Biden's not a legitimate president. So there's a lot of momentum 
spinning in the direction of Trump making these arguments and a track record of Republican establishment figures not being able to stop that. Now, granted, an election is very different than what would be required, particularly from the courts, in order to have the the direction of this thing change significantly, which is why I think that, yes, you're right in saying that. Uh, But I I don't think that it's something we can take for granted. And, And I'll also say that even assuming that things progress as expected and Biden is inaugurated on January 20th, which again is the fair assumption to make, uh, that doesn't mean that there's not been incalculable damage done to the democratic process in the United States, which I think is, which is absolutely the case. Yeah, there's just no question that there's harm uh, and that it will be a difficult to repair kind of harm. So, you know, when I get to my conversation with Mr. Lozado, one of the books that I can ask him about is Daniel Dresner's book, Toddler in Chief, uh, in which each chapter is preceded by a quote from one of those, you know, books on how to raise baby, uh, basically an uncooperative uh, tantrum throwing toddler. And and you've written a piece basically saying, are we going to reject democratic elections to soothe Trump's ego? Uh, in, in Woodward's books, you know, we see Gary Cohn's taking stuff off of his desk so he, he can't act on it. We see Kelly and, uh, and Tillerson talking about, well, would we have to tackle him at some point? Uh, and it seems as though the herd of that kind of person, the kind of person who might subtly or not so subtly sort of step in front of the president and say, no, that's a bridge too far. You really can't go that far. He's basically gotten rid of those people or they've quit. Uh, and and it does seem as though the people who are left are more likely at least to kind of nominally say, oh, yeah, yeah, no, we can do that. We can try to overturn four different elections in four different states. And maybe you could say a little more about that. No, I think you're right the, that President Trump has been pretty aggressive over the course of the past couple of years of weeding out folks who might offer him a contrary opinion. He's, he's you know, more so than past presidents isolated in a very uh, sycophantic bubble uh, and has been for some time now. I mean, we hear these news reports about people who are close to the president or, you know, within the White House saying, well, we, you know, we all sort of acknowledge that he's going to lose this thing. We just sort of let it, we got to let him uh, take his time and come to that realization. Uh, you know, that those people aren't willing to say so publicly, of course, is concerning that so many other Republicans in D.C. are at least willing to pay lip service to Donald Trump's claims, including Senate Majority Mitch McConnell, uh, is also problematic. Uh, you know, at some point in time, there will be an end to it, right? I mean, you know, there was an end to it in 2000 when the Supreme Court ultimately had to weigh in and, and determined which direction the, the results in Florida were going to go. Uh, and that was actually a close race in one state that made all the difference, not a not close race in four states. So it's likely that the end will come sooner than that, that they will run out of legal avenues, assuming they don't just keep filing frivolous lawsuits to try and keep things floating up in the air. Uh, you know, so there will be at some point an authority which says, look, guys, you're done. You know, there's a drop dead date, essentially, of December 8th, in which the states have to finalize their slates of electors by that time. And that's sort of what McConnell pointed to yesterday. Well, you know, that's that's the time at which this thing will be resolved, which obviously is not the way it normally works. But there will at some point be an outside force. A body in, you know, in motion will at some point (laughs) run into an unstoppable object. Uh, But it doesn't seem as though that's going to come from within Donald Trump's administration. Right. And I think you and I both agree that this is really not very much like 2000. 2000 came down to one state and just a few hundred votes in that one state. Uh, And even so, uh, you know, ultimately, Al Gore 
not having expended every single possible move he could make, made a decision, you know, that it was time to, to lay down his cards and, and to accept defeat. So you have a guy like Gore who could accept defeat even with right in his face, you know, a very, very narrow margin. And now you have a guy who can't accept defeat, even though he's losing, you know, pretty much, I mean, he's losing catastrophically. I mean, nobody has mm -hmm. him with more than 217 electoral votes right now, and he's losing by tens of thousands of votes in these states that, that aren't finalized. I mean, this is a very different scenario both ways. It's a more extreme victory for Biden and uh, a completely you know, less magnanimous, uh, to put it mildly, president. So, I mean, what do we do with that? Uh, I mean, the, the, I was ready to respond until you said the, what do we do with that? Which oh, I, I don't no, know then the answer. Forget I asked, forget um, I asked that. that was a, <laughs> you know, um, but I mean the, the, yeah, it's important to point out that Donald Trump tried to establish this election in advance in two ways. First, by claiming that mail-in ballots were likely to be subject to fraud, which was never true, and he never had evidence to support that claim. Uh, but then secondarily, by suggesting that this is the sort of close election that would come down to the courts, which was absolutely an exceptional moment in 2000. It was not a norm. It was not the case that the Supreme Court normally weighed in on these things. It was absolutely an exception. And the Supreme Court itself noted that it was acting exceptionally in, in what it did that year. You know, however you think about it, it it's it sort of set that boundary. Uh, Al Gore at the time was not just contesting a Florida result, which had him down by mere hundreds of votes, unlike, as you point out, Trump's at least five digit deficits in all the states where he trails. Uh, but he was also the popular vote leader. Right. I mean, Al Gore had 500,000 more votes than did George W. Bush. Uh, so it was also not the case that he was operating from a position of weakness in that regard. It was clear that Americans preferred to have him as president. But because of the electoral college system, uh, he wasn't able to prevail. Now, of course, Trump trails by five million votes, you know, 10 times as many votes as did Gore uh, or as did Bush. And, you know, that that gap is widening every day as more votes come in from New York and Illinois and California. Uh, so there is no position in which Trump is comparable to where George W. Bush was. His arguments are far, far weaker. I mean, to the point that, you know, in the same way that I'm, you know, weaker than a professional weightlifter, right? I mean, there's just no comparison between the two. And even if, even if he got, his, you know, a swing of a thousand votes somewhere, which would be more than enough in Florida, it doesn't make a dent in any of the places that he trails now. So there simply is no comparison between the two. And Donald Trump has lost far more decisively uh, than did uh, Al Gore 20 years ago. Yeah, and this is something I'll probably get into with my uh, third guest, but that whole idea when you name in advance all the de deficiencies that you think you see, the flaws that you think you see before the election, but don't take any action, it actually creates a legal disadvantage for yourself. There's a term called lashes, uh, where you, you can't sue after you've lost an election about stuff you knew about beforehand. Right. So he, he's actually put himself in a bad position that way. I want to just quickly, while we have you, just talk a little bit uh, about another thing that you've written about, which is the State Department. The State Department basically, as it looks around the world, decade after decade, is really interested in peaceful transfers of power. That's a good sign when we look at it in other countries. Uh, and, uh, and yet our Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, well, Kat, let's just play the clip here. He said the following. There will be a smooth transition to a second Trump administration. All right, we're, we're ready. The, the world is watching what's taking place here. We're going to count all the votes. When the process is complete, there'll be electors selected. 
there's a process. The Constitution lays it out pretty clearly. The world should have every confidence that the transition necessary to make sure that the State Department is functional today, successful today, and successful with a president who's in office on January 20th, a minute afternoon, will also be successful. So, you know, that statement kind of has two different parts to it. And the first part kind of slightly invalidates the second part, right? I mean, right. he says all the right things kind of towards the end there. But maybe you can expand on this and, and how it kind of contrasts with typically what the State Department has as a value. Well, I think one of the things we've seen over the course of the past four years is that the United States longstanding institutional uh, uh, advocacy for systems like you know, democratic processes and certain international behaviors has been undermined by actions taken by the Trump administration. Uh, that, you know, I went back through yesterday, actually, and pulled out a number of examples just from the Trump administration, of which we've praised the election results in Burundi and the Democratic Republic of Congo and the Seychelles and all these various places where we talk about how they transition to a democratic election is beneficial to that country and how respecting the transfer of power uh, is a sign of uh, governmental health and, and, and you know, the, the body politic. Uh, the government says this a lot. Uh, it is obviously uncommon for a secretary of state then to stand up and reject the obvious <laughs> results of one of America's own elections. He tried to sort of chuckle after having said that it may be the case that it was an extremely ill-timed joke. But this is one of the most senior officials in Donald Trump's cabinet keeping the door cracked for this claim that uh, somehow perhaps Trump is actually the winner of the election, which is flatly not true, and doing so because he obviously thinks that he is someone who might end up on the 2024 Republican uh, nominating ticket uh, and wants to maintain a positive relationship with Trump's extremely fervent base, which again has bought into this idea that he somehow actually won the election. So let me ask you two more quick questions. I know you're busy. I don't want to take up too much of your time here. One of them is, you know, as we look towards Mitch McConnell and other Republican leaders, it's hard to sort of tease out the difference between whatever allegiance to or necessary placating of Donald Trump uh, they feel they have to do uh, versus what's going to happen in Georgia when the runoff comes. Uh, they still haven't solidified or nailed down their majority in the Senate. There might be some reason why McConnell and others would want to charge up the base, make sure people show out to vote in Georgia, that the Republican Party outperforms what it did uh, on November 3rd. I don't know. Do you, do you get any sense as you talk to people, as you interview people, um, you know, sort of whether there's a little bit more of that and a little bit less of let's keep the toddler happy? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of hard to balance. Uh, there are a lot of motivations for people to go along with what Trump is doing right now, right? Uh, part of it certainly is that Donald Trump's going to be very mad at people who buck him. And, you know, for a general run-of-the-mill Republican elected official, there's not a lot of value in being the target of getting dumped on, on by Donald Trump on Twitter, right? There's just not a lot of value to it, you know, beyond obviously standing up for what's right. But, you know, that's sort of secondary to having a bad Twitter feed for a day, I guess. Uh, but there are other reasons that, that they might want to do it, including that a lot of these uh, campaigns and candidates are using it to fundraise. You know, can, can, after a campaign is done, candidates often have debt that they need to retire. Newt Gingrich still has debt from his 2012 presidential race 
that he needs to pay off. And so these candidates are, are raising money. And if you look at the fine print, most of the money goes to retiring campaign debt, including in Donald Trump's case. He's, you know, at first was explicit about it. Now he's sort of pushing all of his money into a pack that can be used to pay off campaign debt. Uh, you know, it's there's this is people are energized about it. And if people are energized, then people are writing checks. And if people are writing checks, then you can pay off your debt. And so that's a motivation as well. Uh, but it is also the case, as you point out, that there is this hotly contested race, set of races really in, in Georgia coming up in early January, which will determine the makeup of the Senate. And Republicans need to win that. And Republicans, in order to win that, have to have an energized Republican base, which they didn't have to the same extent in 2018 that they did in 2020. An off-year uh, election like that, a special runoff election, is necessarily going to depress turnout, particularly from people who only come out to vote because they like Donald Trump. And they need to keep those people ginned up. And so Mitch McConnell doesn't want to say, OK, yeah, right, let's move on to President uh, Joe Biden, because he wants to keep those people energized and active and perhaps, you know, donating to the Senate campaigns as well. All right. Well, Philip Bump, we know that these are busy times for you, so you're so gracious to spend some of that time with us, correspondent for The Washington Post based in New York. Thank you so much for doing this today. Of course. My pleasure. All right. Uh, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk to the guy. He's got to be the guy who's read more Trump and Trump adjacent books than any human being or than is good for any human being. Carlos Lozada joins us. All right. So earlier today, as just a little experiment, uh, I pulled out um, all of the books that I could find in my house that are Trump books and Trump adjacent books. These are almost inevitably people who have appeared on the show. And there were a lot of them. And I know it's not all of them because I couldn't find the Ponowozik book and I couldn't find the Mark Fisher book. And there's a whole bunch of books that I couldn't find. But um, but there's still a lot of them. And ironically, to the, I can add to the pile, so to speak, uh, this terrific new book by Carlos Lozada, the nonfiction book critic of The Washington Post. He won the Pulitzer Prize uh, for Criticism in 2019. And he is the author of What Were We Thinking? A Brief Intellectual history of the Trump era. So, uh, Carlos Lozada, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So, um, I just maybe before we begin, I think it's important to introduce uh, you to the listeners. Uh, so maybe we should just begin by talking about the fact that 2016 was the first American presidential election in which you voted. I explain why that is. Yes, uh, I'm originally from from Lima, Peru. Um, I came here as a child, but I didn't become a U.S. citizen until late 2014. And so I just missed the chance to vote in those midterms. So 2016 was my um, first experience as uh, as a voter. So um, was there a particular, I'm sure you get to ask this all the time, a particular impulse that, that started you down this road uh, of reading these Trump? They're not all books specifically about Trump. We should say some of them are specifically about what you refer to as Heartlandia. These are the kind of hillbilly elegy kinds of, of books about the putative Trump voter. But what got you going on all this? Mm -hmm. I think if you told me up front what the exercise would be, I might not have started down that road, but um, it sort of happened accidentally. I had just become the book critic at the Washington Post in 2015, just a few months before Trump announced his candidacy. And so I started reading some of his books once he was doing so well in the polls for the nomination. Uh, and then 
later on, as people were trying to understand where his support came from, I started reading all these books that were coming out about the white working class. Then he won the election and suddenly there were all these resistance volumes that I had to read. And that's when I realized this is my beat. This is what I'm going to be doing in this job, that all these debates that would emerge from the Trump presidency were going to be in some way litigated through books. And so I really haven't stopped since. Right. And litigated through books is a really interesting phrase because, you know, in a way, as this whole thing got started, some of us went back to Hannah Arendt or or to the work of Richard Hofstadter, which seems so incredibly predictive of some of the stuff that's going on right now, or Neil Postman, uh, who really, you know, way, way early in the game, got that whole idea of politics and entertainment bleeding into each other to a point of being indis- indistinguishable at times. And, and now these books it's kind of an oddity, right, that so many books are coming out in a way that's coterminous with the presidency they're trying to be about. I mean, usually I think of these things as taking, you know, minimum 18 months after the departure of the executive before you'd see these flood tides of books. Yes, I remember back in the in the 90s, I was just out of college, and it was so uh, almost scandalous that someone like George Stephanopoulos would write a memoir of his time in the Clinton White House, uh, you know, before Clinton had left office, it seemed like this, this sort of impossible thing. And now, of course, you know, people have been departing the White House and heading straight to the, to the literary agency, you know, to, uh, to, to sign book deals. Um, So there has been an inordinate amount of books uh, coming out about Trump. Someone estimated that there were about 1,200 books in the first, uh, say, like three plus years of the Trump presidency, compared to about 400 in the equivalent period of the Obama presidency. But I think you're right that initially people started looking back. I mean, it was such a such a shock to so many, including to to Trump supporters and to the Trump Trump, the Trump team itself that that he won, that people started looking at some of the books you mentioned, but also sort of dystopian fiction, you know, 1984 shot to the top of bestseller lists. Um, and, you know, but but quickly, quickly, these books began to emerge in part because of the constant churn in the Trump administration that a, a lot of officials left. Uh, but just people started started weighing in um, journalists, academics, and other other people bringing their expertise to bear. And I mean, it's an irresistible impulse, but one wonders whether this is a good way to try to understand. It's like trying to write about a train while you're running next to it. Um, <laughs> it, it it's, it, you know, a lot of times I think history reveals itself to us as history, when it is history, <laughs> as opposed to trying to write history about something that's happening. I don't know, is, is it a good method is what I'm asking. You know, that's a really good question. I think that, uh, there have been some terrific books to come out of this period. I think that in some ways, the the best books, the most essential books, are not the ones that deal explicitly with Trump himself, but uh, with how the country uh, got to this point. In some ways, Trump um, revealed as much as he really shifted. Um, but I do expect that, that some of the best books of the Trump era um, have have yet to be written. I mean, there you know we're still waiting for you know, Robert Caro's latest volume on LBJ, right? These these histories take a long, long time. And we're going to keep learning about this time uh, for for many years, even in a in a post Trump era, I don't anticipate that um, the the glut of Trump books will will slow down too significantly. 
So as I said at the beginning, I got a lot of these books in my house too, and I've interviewed a lot, a lot of these people. That notwithstanding, there were some books that you wrote about that I didn't know about and I'm intrigued by. One of them is uh, the authors are Levitsky and Zyblatt, if I'm saying that name right. Mm -hmm. This is a, a book. Well, you should describe the book, not me. Sure. Uh, these are two uh, Harvard political scientists who are experts on democracy and democratic breakdowns around the world. And like many democracy experts, they have usually spent uh, their academic careers writing about other countries, uh, not really anticipating that these fears and issues could, could come to the fore in the United States. Um, their book is called How Democracies Die. And they highlight two essential norms that uh, underpin democracy in the United States. And it's something that many of us have come to understand during this period, that democracy is not always about formal rules and laws, but just about mutually understood behavior, about norms. And the, the two norms that they highlight are uh, mutual respect, that is the understanding that you are in an ongoing, sort of repeated game and battle uh, with the opposing party, but that you're both playing the same game, that it's not that one doesn't pose an existential threat to the other. And yet that's a norm that we violated because I think uh, we live in such a polarized country that, that often the sides see themselves as existential threats. And the other norm that they highlight is what they call uh, forbearance, which is just um, this very simple notion that simply because you can do something doesn't mean that you should do something. And right now what you see uh, and what you've seen over the past four years, especially on on the side of the president, is this notion that, well, I I can do this. I, I can fire the FBI director, you know, and and simply because you have the technical ability to do something doesn't make it a good idea. Uh, the the other thing that, that you highlighted from that book that I think is very, very apt right now is particularly I was just talking to your colleague Phil Bump about Mitch McConnell, you know, that idea of. Um, party leaders who are working with a not necessarily stable or rational uh, chief executive. Uh, and in order to get things that they want, they accommodate. Uh, and mm -hmm. uh, they write that party leaders risk becoming the thing they thought they were, they were accommodating. And I think that's that, that seems very apt right now. There's a way in which, you know, like the lobster in the pot, the temperature is being turned up more slowly and more slowly and more slowly. And maybe a guy like McConnell, who basically thought Trump would be useful to him uh, if he could handle him just the right way, has underestimated the degree he has become the thing he thought he could control. Uh, throughout Mitch McConnell's career, he's been uh, interested in, um, you know, maybe not above all else, but but certainly um, certainly up there is uh, judicial appointments. Right. And and to, in that respect, the Trump administration has been entirely um, useful to him. Uh, the parties in the past were thought of as gatekeepers, as you know, party leaders would somehow prevent fringe or extreme candidates and forces from uh, you know, gaining too much prominence, winning elections, and overtaking the, the political system. That is a function that certainly on the right seems to have uh, largely disappeared in in this context. Um, you know, Trump is the sort of leader that if if the parties had had 
fulfilled that function, you know, would have would have been marginalized and would have, you know, instead you would have had sort of, you know, Marco Rubio or Jeb Bush or so, some of these conventional candidates. If you if you look in the past at Mitt Romney, at at, at John McCain, um, you know, these are the kind of candidates that that emerge. But the the party sort of helped stoke the kind of more vociferous Republican base and then finally realized it had lost control. Uh, and, you know, there was a famous book a few years ago that was called The Party Decides that, mm-hmm. that shows how how party leadership, you know, um, selects these candidates. But now the party has basically not decided but submitted. So the the other book I wanted to ask you about, because I, I don't didn't know this book. Uh, and boy, once again, the stuff that you comment on from it just seems aimed right at the moment now is called A Lot of People Are Saying, which is a great title uh, by Muirhead and Rosenbaum. Um, once again, give people just a quick sketch of it. Yes. Um, that's, you know, you notice that some of the so many of the titles of books of the Trump era, um, you know, draw from his own words. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, Fire and Fury, American Carnage, a very stable genius. And this was maybe my favorite. A lot of people are saying because it's something that Trump says a lot when he's floating conspiracy theories. And that's what this book is about. Conspiratorial thinking has been at the at the core of Trump's campaigning and governing strategy, starting with with birtherism, but then I mean, he even questioned the legitimacy of an election that he won in 2016 when he said that there were millions of, of illegal uh, votes. And you know, we're we're back at conspiratorial thinking about elections now in, in 2020. Um, what what Muirhead and and Rosenblum argue is that there's something distinct about this particular brand of conspiracism that Trump peddles. Conspiracies are usually very intricate. Um, uh, you know, if you talk to a 9-11 truther, you know, suddenly you're talking about the temperature at which different metals dissolve and all this. You know, there's there's painstaking detail. Trump's conspiracies are incredibly uncomplicated. They're just one word repetitions, you know, rigged, hoax, fake you know, over and over again until they stick. And what happens next, which is particularly insidious in, in, in the author's view, is that Trump retroactively enlists the institutions of government to try to justify uh, those beliefs. And, uh, you know, there were a ton of books about truth in this period. A lot of people are saying, which was a sort of small academic book by a university press, um, kind of slipped under the radar, but to me was was a very useful book to understand conspiratorial thinking. So, you know, one of the things that I thought while reading your book is that there's a way in which at a certain point we started to habituate to a certain kind of revelation. You know, it's like it's like Valium. You take a Valium every day and pretty soon you need two Valium to get the same effect from the first <laughs> Valium. And there's a way in which, you know, you know, by the time Rucker and Lenig had their book, A Very Stable Genius, come out and there's stuff in there about like he just maybe Trump didn't really understand what Pearl Harbor was. Um, mm-hmm. And you read that and it's you think, well, that's pretty bad. But it's like I've it's sort of like I've, ta- I've taken that Valiant before. I, I know that one. And then by the time uh, Woodward comes out with his second book, it, like there's a scene in that book that no one has ever commented about where they're trying to explain the Korean situation to him and the American investment in Korea versus the military presence of South Korea itself. And they do it with gumballs. Uh, and I'm reading this and I'm thinking, you know, if this book had come out 
in, I don't know if you remember that part, but it, like if it come out in 2017, like everybody gumballs would be a thing. It would be a meme that people talked about. Right. And it just didn't make any impression on anybody at all, because I think we've kind of gotten habituated to a lot of this stuff. And I think it also might help explain why people really wanted the hard stuff. They wanted the Mary Trump book, you know, when that was coming out, mm -hmm. the people, the junkies who were just not getting high anymore on he doesn't know what Pearl Harbor is. They wanted to know what Mary had to say. And I just wonder if you have any thoughts about that that process. I mean, there's been such a surfeit of this stuff that I'm wondering whether it, it, it makes the impact it should. I think you're absolutely right. I think we've gotten to a point where so many things about the Trump presidency uh, were shocking, yet no longer surprising. Right. You know, you could you could believe almost any of these stories because they fit into what we were seeing with our own eyes. And in terms of these books, it really began with Fire and Fury by Michael Wolff, which came out in early 2018 and was the first big blockbuster, you know, sensation Trump book um, that gave you all these uh, bizarre insider details and stories. And ever since then, I feel that that some of these these books, I have I have a chapter in my book that I that I dedicate to all these books. I call them the the Chaos Chronicles because they it's like they're almost competing for just you know who can have the craziest oh my god uh, story. And part of that is also about the way we read them. I think that some of these books have excellent reporting that also uncover um, other significant uh, details that that. We need to know. I mean, Woodward's book, uh, Rage, received so much attention in part for these conversations that uh, the reporter had with President Trump uh, that make up the, the second half of the book. The first half of the book is precisely about uh, national security officials and uh, their major concerns over a potential war with North Korea. Right. If you read A Very Stable Genius, it's something similar. You know, the things that, that are memorable are most memorable are, you know, there was a moment when Trump was reading the Constitution and was literally stumbling over the words like he didn't understand them, you know, which is metaphor alert, right? <laughs> but there are other, other moments in that book that to me were far more significant. Like when I learned that Robert Mueller's team had, you know, after completing their report, passed up the chance to review the Attorney General William Barr's letter uh, that was going to characterize and and frankly mischaracterize that report for the public. You know, in hindsight, I bet they wish that they had taken a look, you know, and and I think sometimes we forget those other more essential parts of this narrative in favor of the uh, shocking, you're not surprising details about Trump day to day. Right. Uh, I, it's a horrible thing to quote one book critic to another book critic, and hopefully you guys didn't like have a fist fight at a book critic circle luncheon one day. But Dwight Garner <laughs> had a line where he said, uh, he talked about these insiders. He's talking specifically about Josh Powell's book inside the NRA. He says, now he's a singing insider in the year of the singing insider, a misfit chorus performing a cappella around a trash can fire. And and I did feel as though, I like I've read enough of those books, and I think you're right. They're trying to outdo each other too. And sometimes it's the smaller thing the smaller observation, the slightly more nuanced observation, uh, it's one that you cite from the Wittes Hennessy book, um, mm -hmm. which I also have, and we did a show with them too. But anyway, um, a, a staffer named Erica Newland, who talks about 
how she would occasionally have to kind of re-engineer, like Trump would do something abrupt and, and not part of the plan and go off script. And part of her job would be to kind of re-engineer the recent history so it didn't seem so crazy. It would look like it kind of made sense. She found out that this was a practice dating back to The Apprentice when yes. he would fire somebody he wasn't supposed to fire. And then the producers would have to go back through the old footage to see if they could kind of set this up, you know, that, that this person was getting fired instead of the person that they had kind of been leading up to getting fired. And to me, that kind of detail is more interesting because I think it's happening also right now with other staffers uh, than, you know, telling me just about some time when he, you know, metaphorically pooped his pants. Uh, I think that uh, a book by James Pony Wasik called Audience of One. Yeah, yeah, we, um, we, we had him on too. <laughs> yes, that that did a very good job of of explaining that dynamic that you outline with The Apprentice, except, of course, you know, it's one thing when you're the host of The Apprentice, another thing when you when you are the head of the executive branch. And Trump has been from the very beginning uh, enlisting the institutions of government to, uh, you know, clean up his mistakes and advance his conspiracies. Uh, and we saw that the very first weekend when he was upset that um uh, the crowd at his inauguration was smaller than it had been at Obama's inauguration. And, you know, he sends out the press secretary of the White House to to make the case. Um, they start, you know, haranguing the National Park Service to come up with, with, with different photos. Um, and that seemed like a small, uh, you know, silly thing, but I think it really set the tone. And you came to see it uh, recur throughout throughout the presidency. The The... The power of a book like like Pani Wazik's is that it establishes a framework, which then you see repeated in in multiple ways, just watching the administration in action. And and that was um, that was sort of the the apprentice writ large. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel as though that the and I think I said this to Pani Wazik that, you know, the apprentice being reality television. Part of the fantasy of reality television is that you can get rid of people, right? That's pretty much what happens on The Bachelor and The Bachelorette and uh, and The Survivor and, and all of these things. There's It's an elimination game where every week you get rid of somebody, which is not, in fact, what you can do in real life. For the most part, you can't get mm -hmm. rid of people all that easily. If they're in your family, you still have to you know spend holidays with them. And if they're your coworkers, you can't just make them go away. And I do think that... Trump sold the fantasy to the American public. You know what? There's people you don't like. We'll just get rid of them. Um, you know, and, and he's done that. I mean, he's gotten rid of all kinds of people, including people that he hired in the first place. But I think that there is he's kind of carried that narrative over. Right. That there's a fantasy that, you know, that you can you don't like somebody. You can make them go away. Um, and mm -hmm. I, I think when we write about stuff like this, we say, well, this is chaos. This is horrible. He he hasn't had a secretary of state last for more than X number or he hasn't, you know, he fired the last four chiefs of staff that he had. But his fans are going, yeah, that's what he does. Right. That's why we like him so much. And what's interesting about that is that, uh, you know, he he governs as if he's not like it's 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 strange in that he both sort of claims uh, almost this kind of absolute power yet also governs as if he's not in power at all, as if he's in the opposition, uh, as his his rhetoric shows. So he's still, um, 
you know, he's cleaning out the elites and doing all this stuff when like he's been running the government for four years. Um, and it's, it's just an unusual sort of game that, that has, has persisted throughout, throughout the, the presidency. I think that the reality TV, um, framework is is useful um in part because uh as i believe honey wazik writes the you know part of the appeal of reality tv is sort of being in on the joke being in on the deception like realize that you're being manipulated but Mm -hmm. feel kind of smart because you get it and i think that's what you see with you know these tens of thousands of, of, of deceptions and misleading statements and outright lies that, that fact checkers have, have chronicled. Um, it's not that they're always believed. Uh, it's that it's that you're in on the joke is that he's making it on your behalf. Uh, you know, if, if you're one of his supporters, um, and it becomes not a marker of conviction, but a marker of allegiance to right. to to believe Trump's deceptions. Well, to that point about being kind of a permanent outsider, he's currently trying to stage a coup d'etat and he's the president, which is not how those things usually work. Uh, anyway, Carlos Lazara, nonfiction book critic of The Washington Post, Pulitzer Prize winner, the author of What Were We Thinking? A Brief Intellectual History of the Trump Era. This has been so much fun. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me. All right, we'll take a break. We'll come back and we're going to... Uh, bear down a little bit on the very specific legal questions facing us in the days and weeks ahead. All right, man, we need an extra 30 minutes for the show today. Uh, I want to thank uh, Kat Pastor. She's there in the studio making it possible for uh, me to be elsewhere, at home specifically, uh, and to Jonathan McPants, the producer of this uh, episode. So uh, in our final segment here, we do want to talk very specifically uh, about uh, what's going to be happening or not happening in the courts. And we're going to do that with Jeannie Suk Gerson, uh, a contributing writer to The New Yorker and a professor at Harvard Law School. Welcome to our conversation. Thank you for having me. So, you know, it has seemed uh, in the last few days as though uh, the Trump campaign and and some of its affiliates have been using the American legal system kind of like a slot machine. They just kind of keep pulling the lever, uh, hoping three cherries are going to come up somewhere. Uh, And and it it often seems that there isn't really a specific theory of the case in some of the lawsuits that they filed. I think in one case, they neglected to specify a remedy. Uh, In another case, I think in Michigan, they may have filed in the wrong court. Um, But there's just kind of this frantic scramble uh, to to find something that will get some kind of traction legally. Is there more going on than what meets the eye here? There may well be in that while you're right that each of the lawsuits themselves on their own um, can look pretty silly, um, the aggregate effect of all of them, if there is a method to the madness, and that's a big if, if there is a method, then the aggregate effect of all of them may convince enough people that where there's smoke, there's fire, that there's so many lawsuits and there's so many different things and so many different claims that, that they're trotting out And so maybe in the end, it will just kind of create a sort of dust cloud of um, suggestion 
that the that there was some there was a, a problem. There was some problem. Don't know what specific problem, but some problem. So one of the questions uh, that has arisen, uh, and President Trump kind of talked about this as though it were a fairly easy thing to do. He at some point basically said, well, I'm going to go to the Supreme Court about this. And if you look back to 2000, this came up earlier in the show, the Supreme Court at that time said, this is a one-time thing. This is not a precedent. And we don't want to do this anymore. <laughs> we don't want to get in the habit of, of deciding elections or doing anything like that. So maybe you could just say a little bit more about whether the Supreme Court would be willing to hear one of these cases, especially in an environment where, you know, there's at minimum four states on the board here. All the margins are in five figures. You know, their incentive to hear a case, I would think, would be somewhat low. I think it's a complicated question. Um, I think Bush v. Gore, many people have taken the statement in Bush v. Gore that this is very limited to the circumstances here. To me, this isn't precedential, but that is not what the, the case actually said. And so it's not, it's, that would be weird for a Supreme Court case to just simply be non-precedential. Mm-hmm. So it is, um, it, it is likely to still play a part in whatever the Supreme Court is going to do, whether to hear a case or not hear a case. So in terms of whether they're likely to hear any of the challenges going on right now, well, it's right now the only one that looks very, um, you know, it, that looks plausible, not like not likely, but plausible is the one about the Pennsylvania ballots that came in after Election Day. And that's a litigation that started before Election Day. And even though right now it looks like Pennsylvania will go to Biden, regardless of what those uh, ballots say, the ones that came in election day are not going to make a difference in the vote margin, but it's still an issue. The legal issue underlying it is whether the state legislature can alter, uh, sorry, whether this a state court can Mm -hmm. alter the state legislature's deadline for receipt of ballots. And that is an issue that uh, many people may feel will recur in future elections. So even if it's not about this election, it's possible that this term at some point, the Supreme Court would decide to hear that case. Now it becomes less and less likely that they'll decide the case um, given that it won't make a difference in this presidential election. But on the other hand, they might be thinking, well, maybe that's the ideal time to decide a case like this when we know it won't be making an actual difference in a presidential election so that people know going forward what the rule ought to be. Yeah, we should say that's the case that's being pursued by the law firm Jones Day. Uh, it's Alito, among others, has signaled an interest in it. And I think he asked that the the ballots that fall into that special category be segregated, at least for now. Um, and it is maybe a, court, a, a question the court would find jurisdictionally interesting as opposed to dispositive uh, of the election. And we should probably say uh, that it's very distinct from that massive 105 page other thing, right? There's another Pennsylvania lawsuit that's alleging all kinds of fraud every which way. Right. It's very distinct from that. This one is a real constitutional issue. And uh, whether whether you agree or disagree with the people who filed the petition, the Republican Party of Pennsylvania, um, it still states out states uh, an, an issue that we know is substantial merely because we know that at least um, three, possibly four justices have signaled that they are interested in it and think that there's something to decide there. 
So um, probably the last question we'll have time for is kind of this doomsday scenario that isn't so much a court case, but some kind of effort to muddy the results enough so that state legislatures might feel as though they had the leeway to seat different electors than the ones that would have been specified by a specific result. Uh, This is a, a pretty scary scenario, although it involves an awful lot of people sacrificing their uh, reputations to kind of jump on a live grenade. Uh, maybe you can say a little bit more about like, how that looks to you. Well, here's where just the preamble, I guess, to my comment is that um, we're all of us over the past week or two have experienced the both the beauty of federalism and the um, nightmare of our federal system, where we have all these states with all of their own distinct uh, election rules and different deadlines and things like that. And so what is what is going to happen is that all of these states have their own processes for determining the winner um, after the vote count of the popular vote and then uh, ascertaining and then and certifying it and saying, okay, the, the our election goes to this candidate or that. And then um, at that point, after the certification, they have to appoint electors state electors, presidential electors that will reflect that certification when they go and vote in the electoral college. And at that point, you can have, um, you can have, it is possible for a state to say, well, because this election was fraudulent, the win was fraudulent, we will appoint electors who will not vote according to the popular vote result. Now that is possible. I I still do not think it's likely, but that is something that we are seeing people push for. We're seeing uh, certain Republican figures saying that that is something that states could do. Um, And then when the, go ahead. Well, I think we're, unfortunately, we are flat out of time. That's my fault too. But so we'll have to lose with, we'll we'll have to leave leave us people with possible, but not likely. Uh, Jeannie Sook-Gerson, thank you so much for joining us today. Contributing writer to The New Yorker, professor at Harvard Law School. Thanks for uh, joining us and for sharing your wisdom. Thank you.